In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In today's Holy Gospel, our Lord takes his three favorite apostles, Peter, James, and John, takes them apart from the others, takes them up to a high mountain, and as the Gospel tells us plainly, is transfigured before them. On this one occasion, our Lord decides to allow the glory which pervades his soul to overflow into his body, that a few rays of light might overflow, as it were, from his soul into his body to give his apostles an insight into the glory that awaits all those souls who are faithful to grace. Because we know that the resurrection, all of our bodies, the bodies of the just, the bodies of the saved, the bodies of the elect, will be glorified and will shine resplendent and radiate light, the bright light of glory, the reward for a life well lived, the reward for being a faithful disciple of our Lord Jesus. But our Lord, of course, came not in a glorified body, but in what we call a passable body, a body capable of suffering for us, not because our Lord had to come that way, but because he desired to suffer and die for our sins. But on this occasion, the glory that pervaded our Lord's soul, since our Lord possessed the fullness of grace, and since our Lord, of course, had the beatific vision, the face-to-face vision of Almighty God, he allowed that glory, that glory that all the elect possess, and which he possesses in a singular fashion, being divine person with a human nature, He allowed that glory to to overflow into his body to give his apostles an inkling, an inkling of what they might expect in the resurrection, an inkling of what they might expect in eternal life if they are faithful. We can imagine that the apostles were feeling pretty good in that exact moment. Hey, we're here. We're with the Lord. We're up on this high mountain. He's showing us his glory and his splendor. We're not like the other nine who are still down there somewhere. Our Lord likes us best. We're special. We may not accuse St. John of that in the first instance, but we certainly might accuse St. Peter of that. St. Peter liked the good things in life. And he loved our Lord dearly. But he always had a tendency to see things with eyes that were all too human, as it were. And he seldom gave things the supernatural value which he should have. We know he liked being next to our Lord. He liked being with our Lord. He was constantly telling our Lord uh, how much he liked being his disciple. So he's probably pretty proud of himself at that moment, St. Peter, up there on the mountain with our Lord, showing forth his splendor. But our Lord humbled him quick smart in a very unusual fashion. He said, you guys wait here. And then our Lord went off a pace or two from those apostles and he summoned forth the great patriarch Moses and the great prophet Elias. Made them come from wherever they were. Moses came forth from the limbo of the fathers. Elijah came forth from uh, from wherever God has him at the moment. Because we know Elijah hasn't undergone death yet, so he's still alive somewhere. He was taken up in a fiery chariot. Uh, and uh, and uh, he awaits uh, death at a later date. How completely awestruck the apostles must have been. 
They thought they were somebody special. And then all of a sudden, our Lord leaves them, just like he left the other nine in the first instance. He leaves them, goes off a pace or two, and summons from heaven these two amazing figures, Moses and Elias. What God-fearing Jew could not have been amazed to see them, the patriarch and the prophet, standing next to our Lord Jesus. Peter must have felt really unimportant at that point, or at least he should have. And then what does our Lord do? He begins talking to Moses and Elias. St. Matthew doesn't actually tell us about the conversation. But Luke does, St. Luke does. This is what St. Luke says to us about the transfiguration. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elias, appearing in majesty. And they spoke of his decease, that is, of the death of our Lord Jesus. They spoke of his decease that he should accomplish in Jerusalem. So our Lord calls forth Moses and Elias, and he begins talking to them about his holy passion, about his approaching passion, and about all that he would undergo in order to reconcile sinners to the Father, probably speaking to them about the ingratitude of men, because Moses and Elias had personal experience with the ingratitude of men towards the goodness of Almighty God, didn't they? Why didn't our Lord speak to Peter, James, and John about his passion? Why are they cut out of the loop at this particular instance? Don't they deserve to hear about his passion? After all, they're his closest disciples, they're his closest apostles. Why doesn't he speak to them at this moment about his holy passion? He already did. He already did. If we turn back one chapter in St. Matthew from today's Holy Gospel and look at chapter 16, where this is what the Gospel tells us. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the ancients and the scribes and the chief priests and be put to death and the third day rise again. And Peter, always Peter, and Peter taking him began to rebuke him saying, Lord, be it far from thee, this shall not be done unto thee. Who, turning to Peter, said, Get behind me, Satan. Thou art a scandal unto me, because thou savorest not the things that are of God, but the things that are of men. What a rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. And now we see Peter up on Tabor, Mount Tabor, with our Lord, transfigured, speaking to the great patriarch Moses and the prophet Elias. You would think at this moment Peter would be humbled enough to reflect for just one moment about the lasting significance of what has been occurring in his life, being an apostle of our Lord. But Peter, it seems, if we read the gospel, is never, ever satisfied. He's always willing to go the extra mile to try to make things go his own way. And on this particular occasion, we know exactly what he does. He walks up to our Lord while he's talking to Moses and Elias. And he says, Lord, just one moment. I know you're talking to two big guys, bigger than me. But I just want you to know that I'm a good servant. And if you want, 
we can build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elias, and then the three of you, and Peter, John and James and myself, we can all just stay here up on this mountain. I know you're talking about going down to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, but it's not necessary. We'll build the tabernacles and we'll just hang out here, you know, until the end of the world or to whatever God the Father summons us to eternal life. For us reading that today, it sounds almost silly. But Peter meant it. Peter was so eager, so eager to see our Lord avoid the cross. And yet we know that our Lord had something in store for Peter. He had his own cross, crucifixion and death, waiting for Peter just a few years later. But Peter, as we know, always learned the hard way that we must do the will of God and not seek our own will. And that there is no other way to transfiguration, as it were, and to glory than to follow our Lord in his passion and in his death. The cross of Jesus is the only way to eternal glory. It is the gate to eternal life. There is no way to circumvent it. It's not as if we can pretend that the cross is simply not there. That's what we try to do in our lives, right? I've heard people say it. I don't want to watch the passion. It's too gruesome for me. Well, maybe it is gruesome. Of course it's gruesome. But each of us, according to our state in life, must live out that same passion in our daily lives. St. Paul says that we must make up for what is lacking in the passion of Christ in our own lives. St. Paul, a blasphemer, is he suggesting there's something lacking in the sufferings of our Lord, that somehow the shedding of his blood was not sufficient for our salvation? Certainly not. But what St. Paul is clearly teaching us is that our Lord who made us without our consent will not save us without our consent. And if we want to be saved, then we must give our consent to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't be like St. Peter who in his early years said, Lord, far be it for me that you should suffer, because then our Lord has but one thing to say to us. Get behind me, Satan. In other words, convert. Stop being Satan. Become my disciple and follow me wherever I go. Even if it is to Mount Calvary, even if it is to crucifixion and death. To a a life here below, viewed from the world's perspective as one both shameful and ignominious. And yet we know that it is life and death that leads to eternal glory. We know the end of the story, of course, that our Lord Jesus humbled the apostles even more when his divine father made his presence known on Mount Tabor and said, This is my beloved son. And St. Peter, Paul, and James fell flat on their faces in fear and trembling, overwhelmed by the divine majesty of God the Father. That same fear they were lacking uh, with regard uh, to the sacred humanity of our divine Savior. But they had reverential fear towards God. But in God, in the flesh, according to the flesh, they had not that fear. 
which should be a clue to us that if we want to go to the Father, go by way of the sacred humanity of our divine Savior. Clothed with the same flesh as us, the flesh which he offered on the cross for love of us, he shed his blood for love of us. And we know that if we offer ourselves to the Eternal Father in union with the sacrifice of the cross, if we invoke the most precious blood of Jesus, then certainly God the Father will hear our prayers and have mercy upon us. Saints Peter, James, and John typify, of course, as we said before in another sermon, the three ways of holiness. St. Peter, the way of love. St. John, the way of the intellect. And St. James, the way of the memory, fidelity to daily duty, depending on which faculty uh, of the soul predominates in us. It doesn't matter at the end of the day which faculty of the soul predominates in us. All of us must tread the same path to salvation, namely the way of Calvary, the way of the cross. There are three great acts in every life of the soul. Desiring eternal life. Think of the joyous, joyful mysteries of the rosary. Desiring eternal life. And of course, we know that eternal life culminates in the actual possession of eternal life. Glorious mysteries. But there's something in between. Something in between that Peter, for one, definitely wanted to avoid at all costs. Namely, the sorrowful mysteries of the Holy Rosary. You and I need to desire the means to holiness, the means to sanctification. There are no other means to holiness and sanctification other than suffering willingly in this life. Whatever, and I mean whatever, Almighty God decrees that we should suffer for love of him and in imitation of his divine son. We need to have a strong faith, exercise the virtue of faith. We need to make concrete acts of faith. We need to realize that the light of faith bids us to accept everything lovingly from our Creator. Everything that He gives us. Because He gives us nothing that is not good for us. When we balk at the cross of Jesus, we make ourselves hypocrites and cowardlings. That's why so many people have stopped living their faith the way they should. They don't reject Christ outright. Some do. But the general mass of Catholics who are not living lives worthy of the Christian name, they do not reject Christ outright, but they reject Christ crucified. They reject his holy cross. They reject the notion that there is anything to be suffered here below or that suffering here below is of any worth for eternal life. It is not enough to desire God simply, but we must desire God our Savior. And we are not worthy of a Savior unless we are first willing to admit our sinfulness why do so many people not come to church or go to confession? Because they don't believe in God? No. The Poles all tell us they believe in God. They don't believe in sin. You and I who do believe in God and hopefully do believe in sin 
also believe that the Lord Jesus has washed our sins away in his blood and is willing to do so at a moment's notice if we will only avail ourselves with heartfelt confidence in his goodness, with a firm purpose of amendment and a desire to do better. And it means we need to see everything in our life is coming from the hands of a loving God, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent. Sometimes we are far too attached to the good. What happened in the gospel? After God the Father spoke and the apostles lay on the ground in fear and trembling, the Lord Jesus came up to them and lovingly said to them, Arise! And they, looking up, we are told, saw only Jesus. You and I, with with our mind's eye, with the eye of our soul, with the eyes of faith, need to keep our eyes focused on the Lord Jesus at each and every moment of our lives. And even if God the Father strips everything else away from us, friends, family, reputation, money, fortune, fame, pride, whatever it is, we can still... Keep our eyes of faith focused on the Lord Jesus. And if we have Jesus, what else matters? Nothing. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we possess Jesus, who is the truth, then we possess all things. St. Paul says that too. Having nothing and yet possessing all things. That is the vocation of each and every Catholic Too many people are more than willing to part with Jesus Christ if only they could have a little bit of the things they think will bring them happiness. And we know that nothing here below will bring us lasting happiness. I'd like to close today speaking about the great St. Thomas Aquinas, the doctor of the church whose feast day was yesterday. St. Thomas is often accused by some of being a boring, dry intellectual. Not only is he a saint for whom very few people have any popular devotion, but some people even accuse him of being the cause of the ruin of devotion. He wrote all those dry, boring theology books that nobody reads. He tried to turn theology into mathematics. He's not a real saint. He's certainly not a saint who speaks to me. And yet if we know anything at all about the great St. Thomas, we know that he was a profoundly holy man. A great saint. He had a childlike love of God coupled with a genius intellect. And he used whatever talents God gave him for God's glory and God's glory alone. And that is something common to all the saints. They live for God and for no other reason. They don't live to please themselves. And St. Thomas was no exception. And one of the great works he wrought was not a boring, dry theology book, but rather a lovely hymn that is so often sung at church, at communion time, Adoro Te Devote. One of the most lovely hymns ever penned uh, by a saint, and it was written by somebody who too many people think was just a dry, boring intellectual. And in the lovely verse that he wrote, this is what St. Thomas had to say concerning faith and the type of faith that we have to have. And I'll translate from the Latin. St. Thomas says in the second stanza of the Adoro Te Devote, Taste and touch and vision to discern thee fail, 
speaking of our Lord Jesus. But the hearing only well may here prevail. I believe whatever the Son of God has said for what the truth has spoken, that alone I hold for true. There is nothing truer than Jesus Christ. There is nothing truer than the Son of God. He is the very word of truth. And all things that he has told us are profitable unto salvation. And if we try to find any truth without having recourse to our Lord Jesus Christ, well, we may, uh, nobody's wrong all of the time. Nevertheless, we will be wrong the greater part of the time, and we will fail to discern those truths that lead to eternal life. So don't let anyone tell you that you can get to heaven without the cross of Jesus. You can't get to heaven without the cross of Jesus because he wills it to be that way. He wills you to be sharers in his sufferings if you wish to be partakers of his glory. May God bless you all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.